1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: It's a topic that we've discussed before. Um, Some, I think, troubling statistics that ought to catch the attention of all of us within the organized church in America, and that is surveys. They've been done by a variety of groups. Probably the most recent, most reliable, in my opinion, is that done by uh, George Barna and his organization that finds that an alarming percentage Of young people who um, grow up in church, attending Sunday school, they've been baptized there, they've uh, been active in children's church all through their young adult years, and then they reach their later teens, high school, largely collegiate level. And it seems that once they graduate from high school and move into college, they move into the dorms and out of the pews. And the question is why? What's going on? in the lives of young people today where they feel perhaps that the church is not adequately addressing their needs. Well, a new book has been written that helps to address this very issue that takes a look at some key strategies that's not necessarily, you know, fancy entertainment programs, things of that sort, but rather an attempt to sort of um, take a look at the church and most specifically, how we can do a better job at not only keeping young people in the church, but allowing church, and most importantly, Christianity at the core, to be relevant in their lives. Joining me now is one of the co-authors of a new book called Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. Jake Mulder. In addition to being co-authors, Director of Strategic Initiatives at Fuller Youth Institute. He is, by the way, a graduate of Fuller Theological Seminary and has also served as a ministry director with Youth for Christ and also with YWAM. And Jake, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today.
3: Hey, thanks, Craig. It's good to be with you.
2: When we uh, talk about solutions, of course, it, it helps to get a bit of a handle on ascertaining what the problem is. Uh, you know, everything from Vacation Bible School, Children's Choir, Youth Church, all of this. Um, youth have always been a important component within the church, and I've also seen studies to suggest that uh, there's a greater likelihood of people continuing um, in their faith for the entire length of their life, um, the younger that they make that decision or commitment to Christ. So we know that youth outreach and ministry is critically important. And yet in recent years, there has been this trend, this trend of young people reaching a certain age and saying, okay, I'm no longer compelled to go by my parents, I no longer feel compelled. And they're done. Why?
3: Yeah, exactly, Craig. In many ways, as you said, it's it's oftentimes, unfortunately, into the college dorm and out of the pews. And as you cited George Barna, the research from their organization often points to the fact that 40, 50 percent of those young people who grow up in the church end up drifting from God and the faith after they graduate from high school. Um, there's a lot of other negative statistics we could look at regarding the church and where the church is at. Pew Research had released uh, some results recently where 78% of the U.S. adult population used to identify as Christian. Now that's 71%. We could look at other negative statistics like uh, 18 to 29 year olds make up 20% of the U.S. population, but they actually make up only 10% of U.S. churchgoers. Uh, So as you indicated, lots of bad news. There's, There's a lot that we could point to of what's not working But that's where we're so excited about this new research in the book, Growing Young, because we decided, what if we looked past the bad news? What if we looked beyond the problems and the struggles? And what if we actually studied churches that are thriving in their ministry to teenagers and young adults?
2: And in doing so, um, and you've looked at churches, across course, uh, 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 across the country, across denominational lines, you've looked at uh, churches that were mixed, churches that were uh, predominantly minority, churches that were predominantly white. Any trends that you see, any commonality with those churches that seem to be doing the quote-unquote better job at keeping or retaining young people?
3: Yeah, very much. And before I mention a couple of those, one of the things I I do want to mention were some of our surprises of what we thought we might find as a commonality that we, in fact, didn't find. So as we began the study, we wondered if we might find that churches that are large would be more effective with millennials, with teenagers and young adults, or maybe it's churches that have a big budget, or it's churches that have been recently planted, or it's churches that have just this off-the-charts, cool quotient, or uh, they, you know, their worship <laughs> is like a rock concert, or they've got a laser light show and fog machines, or a hip, cool young pastor. And we can with confidence say from the churches that we've studied, uh, it was not about any of those single things that led to effectiveness with young people.
2: Interesting. One of the things that strikes me about this, and I mentioned this in my introductory remarks, that we used to do historically a good job as the church in providing uh, places for young people. But I wonder if there's a degree to which maybe that has backfired on us. And I, I pose that question because um, one of the things certainly, and if we compare, for example, young people that get involved in gangs— Uh, Typically, what do we see? We see young people coming from broken homes, uh, single-parent families, divorced families. We see young people who largely will get involved in gangs because there's not only a sense of community there and a sense of power, but a sense of belonging, a sense of feeling like you're, in in a way, in a surrogate family. And I wonder if we have come to perhaps, in this day and age, made a mistake by putting so much emphasis on in a sense, isolating young people because it's children's church, it's youth ministry, it's young people's outreach, that somehow we want them separate and apart from what the rest of the adults do, that in a sense, have we, rather than embracing them so that they get a sense of being in, in that greater community, rather isolated them?
3: Yeah, Craig, I think you're very much onto something that in many ways lines up with our research. Uh-huh. So what what we've landed on As kind of in a nutshell, our study, we've landed on six core commitments that we think are essential for the whole church. And I say whole church because not just the children's church, not just the youth ministry, not just an independent young adult ministry. These are six core commitments that are vital for the whole church culture to buy into. And uh, one of those six, in fact, is something very close to what you mentioned. We've come to call it that these churches prioritize young people and their families everywhere. So they're prioritized in every area of the church. And while that sounds uh, intuitive in some ways or even obvious, what church would say we don't prioritize a younger generation? We found that there's often a strong difference between uh, the rhetoric or the language churches use, perhaps their intentions to prioritize young people, and uh, what it actually looks like to prioritize young people well in practice. Well, and, like and I guess there's like.
2: also a difference between prioritizing versus ghettoizing.
3: Very much. And unfortunately, what we've often done, and I want to emphasize that, that this has been done out of the best of intentions uh, in so many of our churches. So it's not been done out of neglect. It's not been done out of ill will. It's out of a desire that we want to reach and engage children, teenagers, young adults well, that, as you say, we've often segmented them off in their own corner of the church. If, if a church has a large enough budget, perhaps we've built them their own youth room. We've hired them their own staff member as a youth pastor. The problem is that many teenagers, they might go through an average year of their ministry calendar and hardly ever interact with adults who are outside of their age range.
2: Well, the other issue, too, is, and I always thought this, when uh, that Part of the service typically very early on came and the children were, quote unquote, dismissed to head off to their own church. And I thought, I wonder how many of them um, quietly wondered to themselves as they're sitting in youth service, what's going on back in the adult service that the adults don't want them to hear? Uh, I, I mean, you know, there, there's always that sense that well, you're trying to block me from something or 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 leave me out, and uh, you know, children see enough of that when parents say, well, you can only go to certain types of movies, you have to be embedded a certain time. We understand that part of this is good parenting, but part of it, I think, lends lends itself to that sense of of being um, not only isolated but almost. And, and again, I have to concur with you at, at this level, Jake. It's not done with malintent, but I think the unfortunate consequence is that some young people, as a result, may feel as if they're being treated like they're second-class citizens.
3: Yeah, and if I can share an example from one church that stood out in this area in our study, it's, it's First Baptist Southgate. They're located in South Los Angeles, and uh, they're a predominantly Latino congregation, uh, originally, the church was predominantly Spanish-speaking, and what happened in this congregation is the parents, the grandparents, had had moved to the United States, spoke exclusively Spanish. Well, as they had children, as they had grandchildren, uh, those children and grandchildren were growing up in an English-speaking environment in Los Angeles and spoke almost exclusively English. So as they got a bit older and they were looking at their worship service, the church was faced with this decision— of (laughs) we can keep our worship service in spanish so that the grandparents the parents understand what's happening and we could start a separate english ministry somewhere else or on the side or in another part of the building uh, in order to minister to the children the grandchildren in the church but as they reflected on that they just realized that wasn't who god had called them to be as a congregation and they reflected if we were to do that It's only going to drive a wedge between generations. Uh, And so, you know, bless them, the adults, the parents, the grandparents, in the church said, even though this is going to cost us something, and something very important to us of our language, we are willing to go about the process of integrating young people into our service, of letting English be a portion of each of those services. So we saw situations when we visited this church where you had Uh, a grandchild and a grandparent, and the grandparent did not understand parts of the service that were being given in English, but was willing uh, to go there and was willing to do that because of his deep love for his grandson, and the church as a whole embraced the young people in that church. So uh, just one example of what that looked like in practice, and often what it costs both generations.
2: But yet, that sense of coming together in unity and not driving a wedge, but rather um, embracing, uh, is obviously, as you're suggesting, makes a big difference. There's another dynamic to this that I want to talk about after the break, and that is, with so much emphasis in our culture on young people and youth, and let's be honest about it, as you get older, don't you look back? Come on now. I mean, I'm... Jack Benny's age plus <laughs> a number of years, and yet there's the sense that, gee, if I could only go back to my 30s, uh, if I could go back to my, well, I won't go any further. We want to recapture that. We have a sense that there's something about vigor and vitality and energy and enthusiasm that, that is inherent to, to being younger. And yet with so much emphasis on such things, it seems as if they're at least in areas where the church, rather than embracing that and giving credence to that and acknowledging that, instead somehow demonizes it. We'll talk about that next. Our conversation today with the co-author of Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. Jake Mulder, our guest, back with more as Lifeline continues.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: Welcome back to the conversation. Our visit today with Jake Mulder, co-author of Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. One of the things that comes to mind, and I referenced this Jake, just before the break, um, there's so much about our culture that we have a longing to want to go back and be younger if we're older. There's a lot of celebrating of uh, what it means to be young, and yet there seems to be a sense, and again, this is not in all churches, but in some churches, that we, we kind of isolate young people, and we, we suggest that, well, they're not ready, they're not mature, and therefore they're not as valued in some ways, and perhaps at least that's the message that young people are receiving as the older adults. What of that notion, and, and is the church missing the boat here. Um, I mean, certainly maturity in Christ is an important thing, but are we missing the boat in some ways?
3: Yeah, yeah, Craig, I really think we are. And two more of the core commitments that we discovered during our research uh, that characterize churches that are able to grow young really speak to that well. One of them, which I can unpack in just a second, uh, is that these churches seem to empathize with today's young people. Uh, And the other one is that these churches fuel a warm sense of community. Uh, So let me go ahead and speak to the idea of empathy first. Uh, What we discovered in these churches is that so often it's easy for a church or, or really any community to have misunderstanding, especially between generations. And in the church today, what that might look like is... Um, people pointing fingers at millennials and saying, well, millennials today, we all know they're entitled, they're lazy, they don't really want to go to church, they don't really want to follow Christ. And that's not, the, that's not the default position that we saw in the churches in our study. Um, if anything, we found that, that the adults in these churches look to these young people and see that they're going through a significant journey. That they're asking questions, just like all of us are, about identity, questions about who who they are, questions about belonging, where they fit, and questions about purpose, what difference it is that they make. And like I said, all generations today are asking those questions, but for young people today, given how fast the world is changing, given different developmental realities, uh, these questions are really on the forefront of their mind.
2: Well, not only that, but I think there's a way in which we're maybe kind of missing the point here because oftentimes if you talk to older adults, they'll say that, well, you know, compared to younger generations, you can go back to the great generation that right. fought World War II right. and, and so on. They say, well, you know, we had a sense of meaning and purpose and drive. These yep. young people today don't care about anything. And yet, if you sit down and talk with them, they're passionate about protecting the planet, dealing with global warming, saving the whales, all of these sort of, uh, for want of a better term, uh, do-good kind of exercises that all go back to the central point of wanting to leave a mark, wanting to leave the place, the planet, better than it was when they found it or inherited it. And I I just have to wonder, if if we couch the impact of the gospel in terms of the ability for young people to be able to leave a mark and look at the the absolute indelible mark left by Jesus himself. I think young people could look at this and say, wow, I want to be a world changer, and you've just handed me the keys.
3: Yeah, that's exactly what we found in our research. But the difference that you're talking about, it, it means that in our churches, we have to move past assuming We know where people are at, and not just older people towards younger people. We're also advocating for we need to move past the assumptions that young people have for older people, uh, which that's empathy. It's the ability to step into someone else's shoes and understand where they're coming from. But to move back to something that you said uh, earlier in our conversation, when we have a church that's so separated and segmented by generations and different generations never interact Well, it's hard to practice empathy. It's hard to move to that deeper relational understanding. But, yeah, I think how you phrased it, it, that lines up very much with what we found in our research.
2: And, you know, largely it's so sad because um, there's much that both generations can learn from each other. Older people can learn a lot from younger people, and there's an awful lot certainly from an experiential standpoint to be sure that younger people can learn from older people if we just set aside some of these misconceptions and be able to actually dialogue with each other.
3: Yeah, is it okay if I tell you a short story about uh, Bill Wallace, one of the heroes in our study? So uh, we had visited a congregation that was thriving with younger generations, and we were in a room of 20-year-olds, and we asked them, what is it that you love so much about your church? And one of them mentioned something about the worship service, and a few heads nodded. Another one mentioned something about the mission trips, and a few heads nodded. But then one girl sitting over in the corner said, you know what I love about our church? It's Bill Wallace. And all of a sudden, there was a lot of energy in the room. There was excitement. Every head was nodding. And 20-somethings were saying, you know, I love Bill Wallace, too. He's so much of what makes our church our church. They told us how Bill uh, stops them in the hallway, asks them what's happening in their life. He knows their name. He uh, attends sporting events. He attends the dance recitals, other activities of the middle school students and high school students in the church. So uh, we just assumed, and we pictured, well, Bill Wallace, he must be the 22-year-old youth pastor in that church who's just got plenty of time on his hands and goes and hangs out at kids' events. And they actually corrected us and said, no, 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 Bill, <laughs> Bill's not 22 years old. Bill is actually 76 years old. Uh, and Bill has made an intentional decision in his retirement years that he is going to invest in the young people in that church. He knows their name. He cares for them. He shows up, and they love Bill Wallace, and they love their church because of the way he invests in them. So one of the stories that we've been telling of of just something that we, we love about our research, how different generations are being connected, and it's like you said, we think that young people need the church, And the church needs young people. And when the two are together, that's a beautiful thing.
2: And, you know, at the end of the day, that story of Bill that you share so wonderfully illustrates that this is not complicated. This is not expensive. It's not complex. Because I know people listening to our conversation today, especially as we began, said, well, I know what you guys are going to talk about. And we, we, we can't afford that kind of money. We can't build that kind of program. We can't hire that kind of talent. But wait a minute, though. Yeah, there might be times and places for programs and approaches, although if you listen to this program with any frequency, you know that largely I don't buy into that. Most importantly, it's the notion that taking the time to care, the ability to do what would appear to be the inconsequential little things in life that has such a tremendous impact, how many of us that have the ability to be another Bill Wallace as Jake just described, if we'd only take the time and make the effort. The book is compelling. There's much more to learn. And so if you've been captivated by our conversation today and you'd like to go deeper and learn more, I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the book. Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. It can not only be revitalizing to the young people in your church, but revitalizing to your church overall. The new book, by the way, newly published by Baker Books and available in bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get more information on the web by going to churchesgrowingyoung.org. That's churchesgrowingyoung.org. And our thanks to co-author Jake Mulder for being with us today on this edition of Lifeline.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: All of us uh, from time to time have struggled with within our Christian walk, and that is hearing the voice of God. Um, We are told in John 10 and 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And for all of us that say, gee, I I just wish I could hear God's voice more distinctly in life. It would be great if there was the loud, thundering, booming voice out of heaven that shakes you to your innermost being. And yet more often than not, when God speaks, he speaks with that still, small voice. Why is that exactly? Well, our next guest has written a book on the very topic called Hearing God in Conversation How to Recognize His Voice Everywhere, newly published by Kriegel Publications. And its author, our guest today, he is the founding director of Kids of the Heart, author of another of other best selling books, including Is Sunday School Destroying Our Kids? Samuel Williamson, great to have you on the program.
4: Hi, Craig. Thanks very much for, welcome, for welcoming me. I really appreciate it. It would
2: honored. be great if God spoke in this loud, thundering, booming voice that we could know instantly. Aha! There is the voice of God instructing me and in making the right choices and decisions along life's highway. But in fact, God chooses other methodology. We know certainly that He can speak to us through His Word. He can speak to us through others. But that sense of hearing that still, small voice directly and for ourselves, that seems to be elusive for a lot of Christians. Why is that?
4: I think it is elusive. And I think part of the reason, Craig, is because people have this expectation that God only speaks to, you know, the high and mighty, the saints, you know, you know uh, St. Francis of Assisi or Billy Graham or Mother Teresa. And I think it's a false expectation because I think Scripture's very clear when you look at all the heroes of the faith and, and, their, and their foibles, I I think it's very clear that God speaks to us because of his greatness and not because of our greatness. And and we can have a confidence because his greatness is so great and our greatness is so small. But he he speaks to us because of his greatness.
2: All right, so toward that end, then, um, it, it, part of it, then, has to do with our sense of, of, of perspective on our relationship. If God is speaking to us in and out of his greatness, uh, that would also require me to understand the nature of or the balance of the relationship that I have with God, would it not?
4: It absolutely does. And, you know, the Scripture is filled with metaphors that God himself uses to teach us about our relationship with him. And he says that we are the sheep, here's the shepherd. He says that we are the servants, he is the master, we 're the subjects, he is the king, but it also says we are the children, he is the father. you know it breathtakingly intimately he says we are the spouse and he is the bridegroom, but every one of these metaphors is a human relationship, and you know Craig, the essence of relationship, if you think of your uh, of your family of your spouse of your friends, the essence of relationship is communication, and it 's two way communication and I think when we read scripture, scripture overflows with the idea of God wanting to speak to us, wanting us to recognize his voice. It's the essence of Christianity, a relationship with God. And I think God promises and mm, invites us to have a a, a communicative, a, a, a conversational relationship with him.
2: All right, now let's talk about that because that suggests, as you talk about relationship, and anybody I think with with half a mind understands that in order for there to be any success in a relationship, there needs to be that sense of give and take, and that's true of marriage relationships. It's true if you want to get along with uh, with your siblings or get along with your uh, your offspring. Uh, but with that said, it 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 it's kind of a curiosity in that uh, so often when we we think about conversation with God, what we really think about or engage in is monologue. And yet what God wants is dialogues. It's not just a matter of of God hearing from us, and usually our laundry list of all the things that we want or our complaints, but then hearing back from God in return. And I think a lot of people find getting into that place where we have a sense that it's not a monologue, but rather a dialogue with God. That seems to be elusive, because it requires upon us as well to be listening, as well as talking.
4: Absolutely, Craig. Absolutely. And I would say that the few times that we especially want to hear him is the big times of decisions in our life. Like, you know, should I become a doctor or a lawyer or a business person? Should I become a radio host, you know, or should I marry this person or that person? I think that we're, we typically mostly hope for God for the major decisions of our life. But, Craig, I don't know about anything about your relationship with your father or your parents. But, le, but let me ask you a question of your fondest memory of your parents. Uh, you know, if you can think back over your whole life, was it times that they lectured to you or was it times when they just talked to you?
2: Oh, I think that's very clear. I mean, all of us remembering our, our childhood years recall a lot of lectures. Uh, and yet, as, as profound as those moments <laughs> might have been, uh, my, my dad, who, uh, who went to be with the Lord, I still, at 8 o'clock on Sunday evenings, pause, and there's that sense of, of uh, that gap. Because yeah. Yeah. while we talked throughout the week at various times, uh, 8 o'clock Sunday evening seemed to be the time when the week was over with, the weekend was over with, and we had a chance to get on the phone for a half hour, 45 minutes, an hour, whatever it took, and just dialogue, just converse back and forth, and he'd tell his stories, and I would tell mine, and and I, I cherish those moments, probably more so than the lectures. <laughs>
4: of course, absolutely, and mine's the same way. My dad and I, you know, high school might have been a little tougher, but, I mean, I, for, for for 30 years, my dad and I had a wonderful conversational relationship, and, and that's what I remember, and even with my wife, you know, my wife and I, we, we went on our 30th anniversary to Italy a few years ago, but really the the heart and soul of our relationship is when we just sit after dinner and have a cup of coffee and talk together. And it's not even, you know, earth-shattering discussions. It's just normal discussions, and I believe this is what God wants for his people. In fact, how are we going to recognize God's voice in in the storm of a terrible decision if we haven't learned to recognize his voice in the calm wind of a you know, a, an evening breeze. Mm. We, we really need to recognize God's voice in a conversation if we're going to learn to recognize His voice in those very desperate times when we have to make a hard decision.
2: There is a reason why, and, and God certainly in His infinite power could choose to use the loud, thundering voice from the heavens as we all uh, sort of think, of, you know, via our experience in the movies. And yet God, I think, purposefully has chosen to instead speak through, as we see articulated in Scripture, through the still, small voice. And I'm going to ask you why you think that is and what we can learn from that when we come back to more of our conversation. Samuel Williamson with us today. The book, Hearing God in Conversation, How to Recognize His Voice everywhere. The new book, by the way, newly published by Kriegel Publications. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as you can order it directly through Samuel's website at beliefsoftheheart.com. A brief time out, back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: We are back to our conversation, and Samuel Williamson, our guest today, his new book, Hearing God in Conversation, How to Recognize His Voice Everywhere. Now, Samuel, God being God, he can choose to communicate by any means he desires. We'll recall a time when he chose to communicate through a burning bush, as Moses had the experience. Uh, we, We know that he could open up the Heavens with a thunderous voice, but instead, for the most part, for most believers, um, rather than the loud thundering voice that we would know as it shook us to our very core, that it was clearly the voice of God. Instead, God chooses to speak in that that still small voice, as Scripture tells us. Why is that? Is that is that it's got to be? Pr- God is a very purposeful God. There's got to be a reason behind that.
4: I, I think there's two reasons,
2: Craig and.
4: I think the first is, we're all familiar with a passage in 1 Kings, I think it's 19, but it might be 20, where God speaks to Elijah out of a still, small voice. But the background of that is, Elijah's just been involved in one of the greatest miracles God does in the Old Testament. You know, there's this big contest between the prophets of Baal and the prophet of God, Elijah, and Elijah builds this you know, he puts, he puts together an altar, and he puts together the wood on it, he puts the sacrifice on it, and God sends a fiery bolt down from heaven, burns up the sacrifice and the wood and the water and the stones and even the earth, and nobody changes. I mean, Elijah is expecting the people to rise up against Ahab and Jezebel, you know, if not, rise up. At least he expects some some protesters out front saying, "We want the Lord," you know, "We want the Lord." But nothing happens, and and Elijah becomes terribly depressed, and he goes down to Mount Sinai, and that's where it's very interesting. God says, "An earthquake came by, but there was no, but God was not in the earthquake. A whirlwind came by, and God was not in the earthquake in the whirlwind, and a fire came by, and God was not in the fire." And the thing that's so funny is that when God spoke to Moses, he spoke out of the fiery bush. So we spoke out of fire. When God spoke on Mount Sinai to the people of Israel, he spoke out of an earthquake. And when God spoke to Job, he did speak out of a whirlwind. So it's not that God doesn't speak in those things. But I think the deliberate contrast with this huge, spectacular miracle and not changing people's hearts is part of God's point when he finally says, and then God spoke in a still, small voice. I don't think the spectacular changes us, Craig. I mean, I wish I could say if I had something spectacular it would change me, but I really think it's the still, small, quiet, conversational voice of God every day that changes my heart. And, and I would think the big miracles do, but, you know, Jesus did all kinds of miracles, and the Pharisees didn't change their minds. And, and so I, I really do think God is saying there's a part of us humans, maybe us humans in the Western world especially, there's a part of us that wants the spectacular and the miraculous. And I believe in the spectacular and miraculous. Please don't misunderstand me. But I think the thing that changes my heart is when I sit in my chair and I hear God say, you know, Sam, I think you were ignoring your wife. I think you should go repent to her. And it's a quiet, calm voice that has a steady assurance in his voice. And so I think God really... I think God has an invitation. So my first reason that God speaks out of the still small voice instead of the spectacular is I think that's the way humans work. I would say the second reason is I think God likes us to seek Him. And sometimes when we seek the spectacular, we're we're hoping for an emotional experience more than just to be touched by the hand and the heart and the tongue of God.
2: So He wants us to
4: can. I'm sorry for that long answer, Greg. I really appreciate your guidance. No,
2: it, it's an appropriate answer, and I think it also puts things in perspective, and that is to recognize, too, that we serve a holy and righteous God. Amen. Um, okay. Amen. That, I'm really serious. That, that, that sense of, and I think we've, we've, we've lost this in in the modern-day world, that, that sense of, for example, what it meant to be a priest, to enter into the holy of holies and that tremendous sense of of respect and reverence to realize that the priest was entering into the very presence of God. Uh, people forget that so much so, um, and, and Catholics listening will appreciate this, um, a bell is rung uh, during the consecration of the host uh, during Mass, and um, a bell was also um, uh, part of what happened during the, the sacrifice that would take place inside of the Holy of Holies. And a rope was tied around the ankle of the priest. Absolutely. Should, should the priest be found with sin and God strike him dead as being unfit to be in his presence and to offer the sacrifice on behalf of the people of Israel so that they could literally pull the priest out?
4: Because if they went in there, they would be struck.
2: Exactly right. So I think we've <laughs> lost that sense of, of, of awe in the presence of God and in realizing that God doesn't have to raise his voice to us. He is God.
4: Well, and, you know, the one time that God did handwriting on the wall, you know, we all talk about it just about handwriting on the wall. The one time God wrote on the wall, the message basically was King Belshazzar... You're going to die tonight. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> I think I can live without handwriting on the wall tonight. <laughs>
2: you know? Yeah, you're, you're right. And the other notion here, too, and I learned this years ago in, in debate um, we have a tendency, human beings, uh, we saw this uh, just last night. You'll probably see it again on Sunday during the debates. As we're trying to, out of frustration, get our point across, we tend to think if we lay, raise our voices, you'll hear us. Yeah, right. And yet, exactly. I learned many, many years ago that if you really want to get the most important point across, don't raise your voice, instead, lower your voice. Mm. And people will lean in and pay more attention. And I think perhaps God is using the same principle with us. He wants us to pay attention, to recognize who he is in the splendor and glory of all of his grace and righteousness and holiness, and realize that he does care. And not only does he care, and not only does he want to hear from us, but he also wants us to hear from him as we engage in that that dialogue or that conversation, uh, as you call it in the title of the book, Samuel, so that in and through that, uh, we can not only recognize his voice, but also walk in a deeper level of fellowship and pure relationship with Tim that perhaps a lot of us have never, never taken it to that level, never really experienced.
4: I agree with you completely. I, I, you know, Christianity is about relationship. And, and relationship, the heart and soul relationship is really the normal life. It's, it's not, the spectacular is great. You know, don't, don't, don't deny me any of the spectacular but the heart and soul of a relationship is just the normal, everyday, faithful talking and being together. And, and really, that's what makes life rich. And I think that's what God is inviting us into. I, I believe God wants us to hear his voice every day, almost every day. There's, there's times where he might be silent because he can't tell us something. But I, I really believe that God has something for us and that. As you're talking about, he wants he wants us to be able to enter into the holy of holies because the the temple curtain was torn. That's right, so that we can enter back into a relationship with him that that was lost in the Garden of Eden.
2: And you know, we can probably talk to a lot of wives out there who would say their husbands never learned to listen, and perhaps vice versa. (laughs) Uh, God, I think don't
4: call my wife.
2: (laughs) (laughs) She's online too. You say? I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, I I think though that 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 we can also uh, learn a lot from that 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 God perhaps would observe that we've never learned to listen to him. We talk a lot about wanting to hear from God, but do we really want to hear from God? Do we want to not only be vulnerable at that level, but take the time to walk in the fellowship and to have the kind of, of intimacy with God that he really wants not only of us, but for us? It's a compelling read and can be a life-changing one for you. Hearing God in Conversation. How to Recognize His Voice Everywhere. Newly published by Kriegel Publishers. You'll find it available, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through the usual suspects, Amazon.com, and at Samuel's website, BeliefsOfTheHeart.com. That's BeliefsOfTheHeart.com. And our thanks to Samuel Williamson for being with us on this segment of Lifeline